everybody, Dale here. Before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to offer a brief correction. When we talk about the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, I misspoke and misspoke on what the number is. If you are in crisis or experiencing suicidal ideation, dial 988. We love you so much, and here's the episode. Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, from time to time, we receive questions from folks who are trying to figure out some points of theology or biblical doctrine. And sometimes we get those questions through personal conversations. And other times people, they email us or DM us on social media with their questions. I think our most uh, frequent uh, questions that are emailed in uh, probably our top number one is, uh, who do you think you are? I think that one's often directed to you, mm-hmm. by the way, not to me, because uh, I don't say a lot. I mean, the the second most question is probably, what gives you the right? Mm, yeah. That's I mean, truly, though, what, common question. what gives you the right? That's It's Dale a common question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that one. Um, but there are some sincere questions as well, and we're thankful for those. Uh, because while we don't always have uh, an answer to everything, we enjoy wrestling with the question. So if you have a question that you are curious as to how we would answer it, feel free to email us, info at kinosproject.com. But today, instead of tackling like one major theme like we usually do, uh, we're going to sort of do a mailbag episode of commonly asked questions that we think are good questions, important questions that we want to talk about. Yeah, and we have not done this in a while. I think it's been like a year since we've had this kind of episode. I don't know. Time is a myth. Yes. Well, these are my favorite kinds of episodes. Okay, well. In case anyone wanted to know what I really enjoy, these are them. (laughs) It's just spitballing questions. (laughs) And we're going to uh, range the gamut of a lot of things from how Christians should feel about cremation sainthood, suicide, and the so-called age of accountability. So that's what we're going to talk about today, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So today, we're doing kind of a grab bag of questions. And the first one is this. Is it wrong for a Christian to get cremated? While they're alive, probably yes. I'll just say that. 
but after they have passed on from this life, is it wrong for a Christian to arrange to have themselves cremated? And this is an interesting question uh, for me because um, the church that I grew up in, kind of a low church, Baptistic, at times kind of a dispensational uh, upbringing, this isn't a question that really came up a lot. It was always just kind of like assumed that it didn't really matter what happened to your body after you died. I was kind of raised with like this very dualistic understanding of reality and existence that, you know, you uh, aren't a body, uh, you are a soul, and you have a body, and the body doesn't really matter. And that's always kind of the way I was raised. That's not uh, really the, the mainstream Christian tradition for much of church history. As I dug into it a little bit more, I began to realize that. And it's a, a different uh, across different denominations, and there's kind of a longstanding debate, but there's actually far more agreement on this than uh, you might realize. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the resurrection and resurrection uh, theology. And so what the Bible teaches and what you know Christians believe across virtually every Christian tradition is that at the end of time, Jesus will come back and he will physically resurrect his followers to new resurrection bodies. And so the rub with cremation comes in the idea that our resurrected bodies, they're going to have some measure of continuity with the bodies that we have now. And we kind of get this uh, from like looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The New Testament says that that's the first fruits of the coming resurrection. And so we look to what was it like when Jesus raised from the dead? And that gives us an idea of what our resurrection is going to be like. It's going to be of the same kind of resurrection. And when we look to his resurrection, uh, we see this account that he still had the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side. And so there was a great amount of continuity. They knew it was, it was Jesus. Um, at the same time, when Jesus was raised to this new kind of body, um, it, it was different, right? Like he could walk through walls and sometimes people didn't recognize him uh, up until like this moment they had this spiritual insight. And so there was something different, but there was something the same uh, about him. And in this very real sense, it, it was in some way the same body that he had carried around for 33 years of life on the earth. When he was raised, that was the same body, but different uh, when he was raised. And so that's kind of the tension that we we live in as we look ahead to the future resurrection. And so with cremation, uh, many Christians have argued that it's a, uh, a desecration of the very body that Jesus is meant to raise up on the last day. It's kind of a desecration of it to burn it down to ash. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, they banned priests from even officiating a funeral or a memorial where the person had been cremated. And that was the standing rule all the way up until 1966. Uh, and they still really don't like it, but now they'll at least preside over uh, a memorial service. Uh, but they do require, if you're cremated, that the ashes are buried or entombed. They still believe that it's a desecration to scatter those ashes, say, over the ocean or your favorite spot or something like that, that they need to be in the same spot, in the same box, and entombed in the same place. The Eastern Orthodox Church, they haven't changed at all, and they are very strict on no cremation. We don't preside over that or accept that at all. Uh, for Protestants, we actually used to be a lot more uh, in line with uh, Catholics on this issue uh, up until the point of uh, World War I and the Spanish flu towards the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so that pandemic and a world war, uh, we started to do cremation a little bit more, and part of that was just kind of functional. 
it, you know, because there were so many people that that died from a global pandemic and a major world war that uh, cremation became a more common way to deal with the remains of people because we were dealing with remains on a scale hitherto undreamt of by the millions. Uh, and so people kind of got more comfortable with it. And also there's kind of this distinction that began to emerge from kind of the old school kind of European pagan cremation by like, you know, they would uh, make a funeral pyre and they would light that up on fire like a giant bonfire. And this was associated with pagan practices. So you think of like Vikings or the Germanic tribes of old, this is how they would do it. And it was very much part of their pagan practices. But when you look at kind of the modern... Um, a crematorium, which is different from a cremistry. I feel like that's important to uh, point out. Those two things are very different. A crematorium, uh, you didn't like that joke. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, this became more palatable. It became like this more like scientific thing. It's not a spiritual thing. And so uh, folks became more comfortable with that. And so across the Protestant uh, denominations, there is a little bit of a variety and diversity of thought. Uh, for Anglicans, who are actually, you know, some people call them like Catholic light um, because they are a little bit more high church, they still prefer burial, but they will allow for cremation. And with cremation, they also prefer that the remains be, you know, intact and entombed. Uh, Episcopalians, again, very high church, uh, they feel the same way. Pentecostals actually feel the same way on the, the opposite end of the spectrum, very low church. Uh, and then when we get to Baptists and Methodists, they tend to remain sort of agnostic about it, like as a group. Uh, I think, of, you know, I'm most familiar with Baptists and some lean more reformed. Some are a little bit more uh, low church and have different varieties of theology therein. And so there's a bit of a diversity of opinion there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the gamut of things. Tamara, what are your personal thoughts about being cremated? Uh I came from similar backgrounds in terms of it it wasn't really um a debate about whether you should be uh cremated or not. And you were raised in a Pentecostal yeah circles. Right. But you Which weren't raised in very like uh the the Pentecostals who are more opposed to cremation are more on the fundamentalist side of Pentecostal and you didn't really grow up on that side of Pentecostalism. No. You grew up more on the evangelical side of it right mm -hmm. yeah exactly and so just in my upbringing it was more of like what do you personally want to do like what do you feel comfortable asking for in terms of what happens to you after you die uh and like even into my adulthood it was more like what is better for the environment like that was kind of the talking point oh interesting right about what would happen to you and I've always joked about like, oh, just turn me into a tree. That's fine. Um, I don't want you to cremate me and turn me into like earrings or a ring. Like I can just be a tree. That's fine. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but once you kind of think about this from a theological perspective, um, I do think I have um, a, a shift in my thought of um, not that you're I don't believe your body cannot be resurrected because it's cremated. Right. Yeah, because I had that same thought because yeah. there's people, you think about the number of Christians who are in 
Nagasaki and Hiroshima, who right. tragically, yeah. their bodies were vaporized by yeah. a nuclear bomb. Well, or I just read a story about a pastor who, uh, tragically, he was like uh, burning old documents because he mm-hmm. was moving, and his fire pit blew up, and he had third-degree burns across 60% of his body, and he ended up uh, not making it, and his body is, you know, right. obviously horribly disfigured. Yeah. But... Yeah. God is still going to reconstitute that somehow into a Certainly. new body. Yeah. And and to take that in such a literal sense um, seems to put God in a box of like, well, if you are not in um, your earth side form, then you can't be resurrected into your new body. Um, it, it just, to me that there's just too many limiting factors of like what God's able to do. And if you just look throughout history, a lot of people didn't have the choice about how that happened to them. Right. Like you can think of people who maybe didn't, uh, weren't cremated, um, but died in war and maybe they were dismembered or other horrific things happened to them. Uh, and so I just, Growing up had never thought that was a limitation for God in how he would resurrect our bodies. Uh, so I still definitely lean to, um, maybe I'm just more agnostic about it, but I there is an aspect of um, how do we also honor like what God has created and n- knowing that this um, is something that, that he crafted like in the very beginning of time, right? When he created Adam and Eve, he talks about creating man and woman and that was intentional. And maybe looking back, I've thought like, "Eh, my body doesn't really matter. Um, But maybe I was a little too lax about that. And there should be um, a bit more, I guess, value to the way that I perceive even just the creation of mankind. Yeah. I mean, it's also a financial question to be sure. Um, because it's much more expensive to be buried whole than it is to be cremated right. even and entombed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the, you mentioned like some people like maybe thinking that you can't be resurrected or like something like that. Right. I think there's very few people that represents a very minority view, even within people who are very anti cremation. Um, I mean, it does exist and that, you know, the logic breaks down obviously with a couple of hypotheticals right Certainly. off the bat. Um, but yeah, I think you're you're right that there is a, a question worth considering just on the level of uh, respect for the body. Right. Like, what is it to be respectful mm-hmm. to the body? Mm-hmm. Is it disrespectful mm-hmm. to cremate it? And um, maybe for you that's yes, maybe for you that's no. I mean, that, but that is something that's worth wrestling with. Um, I don't think it's something worth coming super coming down super hard on somebody else about where they land no um but certainly you can feel strongly about it like like yeah i absolutely want to be cremated or Mm -hmm. because it's more Mm eco-friendly and you did it on such and such or like no i absolutely i have respect for the body yeah generally and specifically my own body i would i would prefer that from the dust i came to the dust i Mm -hmm. return in a casket uh in a way that is somewhat whole uh that i'm there at the coming resurrection and I think that that's a, a worthwhile question. Yeah. And it it's interesting that my perspective has shifted not in wrestling with should I be cremated or not, but really what is it to be created at all? And what is it to be like the crown jewel of creation and in the image of God? Like what does all of that actually mean? And the inherent value and worth that God has given 
every single person who exists on the planet. Uh, and there's an intentionality behind the creation. Uh, and so not that you're honoring the creation in such a way that you're, you know, wanting to adorn it even in its burial, but maybe I was too far on the other end of like, Meh, it doesn't really matter what happens to my body when I die. Um, like my family can just do whatever they want with it, whatever mm-hmm. makes sense to them. Uh, but just probably in the last couple of years, as I've started to understand that the inherent dignity that humanity holds, I might be a little more like, mm, maybe don't just do whatever you want. Um, maybe there is some value in uh, the earthly bodies that God has given us. So, so you've moved from, it doesn't matter, make me a tree to, it matters, but maybe make me a tree. Yes. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So just, but like I said, it wasn't in wrestling with the creation, I mean, with the question of uh, cremation or burial. It was in wrestling with, like, what do we see happening in Genesis 1 and mm-hmm. 2? Yeah. Cool. Our next question, what is a saint? Are only some Christians saints? And this is another question that is denominationally conditioned uh, because for Roman Catholics and for Eastern Orthodox as well, uh, this means a very specific thing. For them, the saints are someone who is venerated by the church. And in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, specifically the Pope, uh, they're honored as someone who lived an extraordinary or exemplary life uh, of faith and righteousness and uh, has now become canonized. That's the official term. They, they, they bring you into the canon of the saints, uh, and they have become an official church saint. Uh, and this really finds its roots in the early church when Christians would pay special honor and remembrance to those who were martyred under Roman persecution. Like, they gave a, a kind of a special place of honor to those who were taken to the Colosseum for their faith, or who were burned at the stake for their faith uh, by these evil emperors of Rome. Uh, and there was just this honor to that because you had uh, given your life to the highest cause and you, you didn't uh, recant, you didn't flinch when they said, we're going to take your life from you. And so they gave special honor to that. But in kind of subsequent uh, centuries, as... Uh, Christianity kind of came to the seat of power, uh, this kind of morphed and it evolved into a whole system of official canonization uh, that exists in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church today. And uh, uh, and so you can look up what are the, the Orthodox saints and the, the Roman Catholic saints, and they have their own kind of lexicons of saints. I mean, so they share some of them, especially the early ones, whether it's, you know, St. Augustine or St. Nicholas or St. Valentine or, you know, any number of those. But, you know, say like Thomas Aquinas. Is Thomas Aquinas a saint? I don't know. I'll have to fact check that. But if he is one, he would only be a Roman Catholic one because that's when the East and West had had already split. My, the fact check in my brain was like, no, I don't know him as a saint. But like you think of Augustine, you only know him as saint, right? Yeah. So, like, you categorize the name as saint in front of it. Right, yeah. But, anyways. Yeah, so for Protestants, though, um, we don't do that. We don't do that here. Um, Because we see that as something that's kind of extra-biblical. It's a bit of um, tradition, not in the sense of something being handed down to us, but in kind of like a system of extra-biblical 
tradition that uh, can weigh down the whole thing and really obscure what that word actually means. Because in the New Testament, the word saint is the Greek word hagios. Uh, so you, you, you might have heard the word hagiography, which is like a biography of one of these venerated saints, which is really more legend than uh, historical biography. Uh, so that's why it's a different subset. Uh, but this word hagios, uh, you see it all, all over the place in the New Testament. And it literally means a holy one or set apart one. Uh, and it's used as a general term to refer to followers of Jesus. Paul uses it all over the place. Uh, Luke uses it uh, himself in Acts, and he records other Christians using it to speak of other Christians at the time, just, you know, the saints uh, that were gathered there is kind of the, the formulation. And Paul, he kind of uses it interchangeably with uh, other words like uh, brethren, the Greek word uh, adelphoi, which means brothers and sisters. Uh, and it's a term, you know, really a term of endearment of fellow Christians uh, with some kind of theological weight to it, that as a Christian, you are a, you are set aside from the world. You are in the world, but you're not of the world. Uh, Adelphoi, we are brothers and sisters. This is a new spiritual family. So they have theological weight to them, but really it's just a term of like us, you know, what one of us uh, is, uh, you know, uh, Hagioi, Adelphoi, these terms are used interchangeably. And so... Uh, for anyone who is a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. Like, that's just what they call you. Right. And I, at least in conversation, I don't know if um, a lot of people are comfortable, like, calling one another saints. Because there just is such a rich tradition around sainthood and what it is to be a saint that you think of like someone like mother Teresa mm -hmm. and you don't think yourself could be ever identified as a saint. But as we actually look to the new Testament and within scripture, we see sainthood is, is just uh, someone who's a follower of Christ, someone who's a Christian. And so uh, we are saints as we are pursuing um, becoming more like Jesus. And I think uh, a lot of maybe evangelicals are a little bit squeamish about that term because um, oftentimes, as you see, the the break off from uh, Catholicism to Protestantism um, during the Reformation is also the, the worshiping of saints. And so uh, you don't want to take that tradition and say, like, great, all Christians should be worshipped in some kind of a way. Like, there's no extra power that we have just because there's this label saint. Um, but it's, to me, it's a bit of a liberating term in that uh, this is what scripture calls followers of Christ. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be uh, a saint <laughs> by the traditional definition. I'm no saint. To be a saint. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you could, you could still say I'm no saint and still be a saint. Exactly. If you are a follower of Jesus, because it's not a title you earn. But it's one that is bestowed upon you yep. as you come into the body of believers. Well, we have another question that is uh, a difficult one, um, but we'll dive into that one in just a moment. So this next question, uh, it's tough and it's a sensitive question, but it's this. Is suicide the unforgivable sin? And the short answer is no. Uh, suicide is not an unforgivable sin. And um, I don't actually believe that it, it sends an otherwise devoted follower of Jesus to hell. Um, that's kind of a common belief that some people hold. 
Um, and what's more is that I think that when we frame suicide in terms of being a sin, we actually fail to understand what it is and what causes it. Because in most cases, um, suicide isn't a choice that someone makes. At least not a choice that they would make in their right mind. But when someone is like under duress uh, and in extreme emotional distress um, that is like persistent and clinically severe, what happens sometimes is that they, they make a snap move that were they to survive it, they probably would wish that they could have taken it back. And that is the case for many people who survive suicide attempts. It's not a choice that they wanted to make, but it was a moment of desperation and it was just something that kind of happened to them. Um, you can kind of think of it like this. Think about a person who's stranded at sea without food or water. And as much as they know that the salt water from the ocean uh, will kill them if they drink it, uh, if you get thirsty enough, at a certain point, it doesn't matter. Because if you look at the salt water, the, the ocean water, you would say, why would you drink that? You say, well, I wouldn't until I would. And if you would, then there, there's something that has, has gone awry. And so sometimes suicide is this momentary lapse in judgment that comes as a result of being in the midst of a mental health crisis. And it's just uh, th- that this lapse, it unfortunately has permanent and deadly consequences. But I don't think it's necessarily a choice. And you can probably quibble with me over that word choice, like, we have free will. Everything's a choice. We could argue about, well, what is a choice? Um, but I, I can say this with more certainty, that it certainly isn't uh, the result of someone being sinful or cowardly. And uh, the person who dies isn't um, an, an evil person or um, selfish or whatever other mischaracterizations you might throw at them, but they're actually a victim of suicide. And that's why, for me, I think it's uh, it's important that we we put the proper language around this, um, and and maybe not use the phrase that someone committed suicide, um, but rather to say that they died by suicide, because they're a victim rather than a perpetrator. And that word "committed," like you committed murder, you committed assault, you committed a sin. Um, I don't think that's helpful language. I don't think it's a helpful framing of it. I think um, saying that someone died by suicide is a much more accurate and empathetic representation of what actually happened. Um, And so I think even the language that we use around that can uh, further uh, misunderstandings of what that mental health crisis actually entailed. And so for you, if you're listening to this and you have, uh, you know, you're experiencing suicidal ideation, uh, we'd urge you to stop listening right now, like hit pause and dial one eight eight to get in touch with someone who can offer you some support and some help. That doesn't have to be your story. And um, uh, if anything, right now, what we want to do is remove the stigma that you might feel from suicidal ideation, which is um, something that is happening to you as a result of a mental health crisis and not the result of you being uh, weak or sinful or anything like that. So we want to remove that that stigma off the bat um, and just encourage you um, to get help because um, there are people who love you and there's a, a God who loves you and we don't want that to to be your story. Is there anything that you would add to that, Tim? 
Yeah, I think you, um, yeah, like touched on all the really critical points and uh, just thinking about it even from a um, like biblical perspective as people wrestle with this and think like, well, what if I am saved and or or they lost a loved one to suicide, right? And they were confident in their salvation, but now they're not sure. Uh, The verse that kind of um, can be hopefully an assurance of of that person, like if you were already assured in their salvation and now you're questioning it because of um, of suicide is that um, like, I think it's Paul in Romans. Let me look it up here. Yeah. Romans 8. So 838, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's just a reminder that not even death in its many forms that it takes on, mm-hmm. right? In any kind of form that it, it uh, like comes out to play out, it, nothing can take someone from the hands of Christ. And so um, I just want to add that as I, I know people who have like really thought deeply about this question as they lost someone to suicide mm-hmm. and thought, well, like I thought they were just such a faithful believer. Like what happened? Can there be an assurance of salvation? And I, I always am reminded of this verse and like not even death because that's like the ultimate thing that Christ conquered, right? Mm-hmm. Is death itself. And we often think of death in like its natural forms of like, oh, they died of old age. But there's so many ways that people die that in every single category, the hope of Christ is greater. In every single category of death, whether it be um, through suicide or cancer or terminal illness or um, murder or just any array of things, like the hope of Christ is greater and the power of Christ is greater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's such an important, um, that's such an important truth that we have to hold in hopefully the forefront of our minds as we're engaging with stories of suicide, family members who are mourning and grieving that um, the, the power of Christ is greater. It doesn't stop at suicide. Mm-hmm. And, for whatever reason, um, just that stigma has weighed over the church, has weighed over believers in Christ so much so that there's just been like internal torment over loved ones because uh, the death was by suicide, right? So, um, yeah, we can just be confident that nothing is is greater than the power of God and we can hold on to that hope in Christ um, even if that's that's where you're sitting and that's where you're grieving and that's a heavy thing. So I don't want to be like, well, but it's just suicide. Like it's it's heavy and it's big, but um, the hope of Christ is greater. Yeah, and I think if you know someone who died by suicide and you know that they were a faithful follower of Jesus, then what you probably know is that they were fighting uh, mm. and they were fighting hard and they were probably yeah. fighting for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, uh, death came for them. Um, but now they're in the presence of Jesus and they're, they're not having to fight anymore. And they're, the, the pain has been lifted and the, the weight of um, that mental health crisis is no longer 
a factor of their existence and, and won't be. And so they've been made whole. And so I think that's something that we, uh, as we, we grieve and mourn or confused or angry or all the emotions that you feel, even just to, to have that as kind of like the banner above it, that yeah. as you go through that, that that's not a hopeless thing that you're doing as you're grieving and mourning that, but you're doing it in the knowledge that that person isn't suffering anymore. If, if they were a follower of Jesus and they put their trust in him, mm. even if they had these severe uh, mental health crises, um, they, they are made whole mm. now. Amen. Yeah. And, and nothing can thwart the grace of Jesus. Like nothing can change that. Nothing can withhold the grace of Christ. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm even as we've prepped to talk about this, I knew this was going to be the one that, um, is so heavy and so many people, um, are, personally wrestling with it or are so are adjacent to it in some way that it impacts lives um, as it should when a life is lost. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, just that reminder that um, nothing can withhold the grace of, of Jesus from somebody's life. Yeah. Yeah. Tough to transition out of that one, but I know. Why'd you throw that one? I know. Yeah. So that we wouldn't have to end on it. Mm, Um, This next question is this. What is the, quote, age of accountability? When are children responsible for their own faith? Now, this phrase, age of accountability, it's used again across a number of Christian traditions, but generally what it is, is it, it refers to the age at which children are deemed accountable uh, for their beliefs and actions. So in other words, it's the age at which a child is has enough understanding uh, to be held responsible for whether they have placed their faith in Jesus or not. And most often people think of it in the event of their untimely and tragic demise. Um, and different traditions see it differently. For Roman Catholics, they set this age around seven. I don't know how they arrived at that age. I mean, it's a number of perfection. I don't know. Um, I, I didn't do further, re- but that's all. everything I read said that's seven. That's the number. Uh, Reformed folks, uh, they don't believe in the concept at all. Uh, because they believe that either you are unconditionally elect and predestined to heaven or not. So if you tragically die before you were able to make a profession of faith, but you were still elect, um, then you're in heaven, as I understand their view. Uh, Methodists, uh, they teach that Christ's atonement is, quote, unconditionally effective in the salvation of those mentally incompetent from birth, of those converted persons who have become mentally incompetent, and of children under the age of accountability. And they don't really specify what that age is. It's kind of imprecise. What did they know? Um, you know, they'll be held responsible to the measure that they had an ability to understand these things. And if they have, you know, you know, a, a four-year-old faith in Jesus, uh, then whatever the, the measure of the capacity of that is, and that's, you know, what's judged, I suppose. Um, Baptists, I think they're kind of diverse in their thinking on the issue. Some of them lean more reformed. Some of them are a little bit more Wesleyan. So there's kind of a, a variety in how to kind of grapple with this. There's not really a lot of biblical data to help us come up with a definitive answer on like this question in general. Um, but to frame it more positively, um, Christians who kind of use this concept of, uh, age of accountability, it is kind of like when a, a, a child comes into their own and there's kind of like this this marking point of when maybe a child was born and raised in the church, 
but they have matured to a point, you know, in their uh, childhood or pre-adolescence to where now they can be fully incorporated as a member of the church who can participate in communion, who are seen as just, you know, one of, uh, you know, the many who are in this community of believers and are fully incorporated into that. And there's kind of like symbolic um, uh, uh, ordinances, uh, depending on your tradition, that kind of signify that and mark that off. Uh, for some, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Anglicans, uh, a couple others, this is the um, the confirmation process for children who were baptized as infants, Presbyterians as well. Um, for those who practice uh, believer's baptism, uh, like myself and Tamself, uh, it, this is when the, the child is baptized. That's kind of the great signifying moment that, you know, the child is not only at the age of accountability, but they have fully stepped into and have become a, a fully incorporated member of the body of believers. Their faith is their own. And, you know, even if they are your child, now they are your brother and sister in Christ. And, you know, we treat them uh, as such with all of the, the rights and privileges that come along with being a part of the body of believers. So, Tam, what are your thoughts on the age of accountability? And uh, also, what would you say to parents who perhaps are worried, who fret, or who are rightly concerned uh, about the salvation of their young children? Mm. Yeah, I actually recently had a, a student who was, I guess, I don't even know if you would call her a student. She was a like four or five-year-old, so <laughs> maybe she's a student, maybe she's not in school yet. Um but she actually came up to me and asked me if she could be baptized. And uh, that was in that moment. I was like, oh, um, hmm, interesting, interesting question. And so as I just thought, like, you know what? Let me, like, talk to her. Like, why do you want to be baptized? Like, what is it? And you hear about adults who then say they can remember back to really early ages of understanding the gospel and um, being drawn to this point of, of realizing, like, oh, yeah, I am in, in need of Christ. Even if they can't quite articulate it within the framework, within the language that, you know, I am a sinner who's in need of salvation and I repent of my sin. But they they understand what it is internally about them. And um, as they see and hear about the hope of Jesus, their heart can can reconcile that need for him, right? Um, and so I think as I, as I think of even just this girl that was in my, uh, my class at church who was asking me if she could be baptized and I was having this conversation with her and as I was talking to her, um, she understood the gospel again. I don't, she wasn't able to articulate it in, you know, this, this clear theological framework, but I don't even know if most adults can. I mean, and to the measure that a five-year-old can understand, it yeah. has language. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so I think as uh, as just that word of encouragement is, is as your parent continue to talk to you, to your children, and sure, if they're asking to be baptized or they're asking about Jesus, I mean, my son, <laughs> who is four, when I ask him, hey, Silas, do you have any prayer requests? And he says, yes. And I said, okay, yeah. Like, what are your prayer requests? Baby Jesus. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> I don't, I don't think you. I like to think of him as a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I was recently telling a coworker that um, I was really excited that Silas was like kind of, I thought he was really grasping, like understanding 
um, the birth of Christ and <laughs> who Christ is, like he's fully God and fully man. And yeah, every time we take prayer requests and he's like, yeah, baby Jesus. And I'm like, hmm, you just, maybe you just really like babies right now because you have a baby brother and you just, yeah. Well, it's probably so, because Christmas was the, the most recent holiday yes. because when he came home from church on Easter, we're like, what'd you learn in church today? Oh, yeah. And he said, God died. I was like, hold up, Frederick yes. Nietzsche. I feel like you only <laughs> listen to the first half of the story. Yeah. But I mean, you can see his cognitive growth, right? From mm-hmm. holiday to holiday. And he, he is, he loves the Christmas story. And I continue to pray that it's more than just like a story he enjoys reading because we read books every night. Um, but that there's something else actually landing in his brain. Um, but I'm not quite sure, right? Like I'm I'm not sure what he fully understands. But talking to this other five-year-old in my class, I could tell that she was processing things in a way that even my four-year-old wasn't, right? Like she was right. understanding things. And so as we think of this quote-unquote age of accountability, a lot of the times I think the question is around salvation, of course. It's around baptism. It's around like what can we allow children to participate in? Um, and I think maybe we are creating uh, guardrails and boundaries around kids that Jesus wouldn't have created. Um, hmm. because he just said like, let the children come. Yeah. Like let yeah. them come. And like Jesus being fully God understands their cognitive capacity, right? Like he understands what it is about their, like, they're only thinking with, <laughs> with a very, oh, they're the walking brain stems, right? So mm-hmm. they don't have this deep cognitive capacity, but Jesus says like, let them come to me. And the disciples were stopping the children from coming. And Jesus was saying, no, let them come. And then Jesus continues to use this like um, language of this childlike faith and really trying to draw us back to children and the wonder of children and the awe of children. And so sometimes we want to create this line of where is this age of accountability, meaning where can they truly be saved and when can we allow them to participate in things? Um, and I think we just need to not be so concerned with that mm-hmm. timeline. Um, and yeah, like, again, I talked to my son who's four and I talked to this little girl who's five and the conversations with them were so different. Um, and I'm not an expert in child development, but I can tell you that she understood things, uh, understood the gospel in a way that my four-year-old son didn't. Mm -hmm. And so what is that age? Is it four and a half then? Like, I don't know. Right. Like just measuring the two conversations I had. Right. Like, where is it? Four and six months? Like, I I just think, um, I understand the valid concerns, but we have to continue to, to show our kids Jesus, not only within the very clear, like, uh, message and story of Christ um, and the redemption he brings and his birth and his death and his resurrection and all of those things and, you know, sharing them in a way that children can understand and grasp in their mind. Um, but also we have to try and like be Jesus to them, mm-hmm. live that out to them. Not only just tell them stories about Jesus, but to actually show them what it is for an adult who says they are a follower of Christ 
to actually act like a follower of Christ to that child. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the witness. Yeah. Right? So I don't, again, I don't know if I answered your question. Um, and maybe I just danced around it. But I I don't think there's a magic number. Yeah. And I would say that you can be encouraged by the fact that Jesus loves your kids more than you do. Mm. And so... I don't know why that makes me want to cry right now. That's... Because I, mean, I love my kids. That's the best answer yep. I can give because we yep. don't, we honestly don't have the answers to that. Yeah. And so, yeah, you want to be faithful. You want to mm-hmm. talk to your kids. You want to mm-hmm. love your kids. You want to show them Jesus. You want to tell them about mm-hmm. Jesus. You, when they say God died, you want to have a follow-up conversation about that and say, yes, Jesus is God and he did die, but he rose again so that you could live forever with him. Um, and, you know, hopefully, however many conversations you have of a similar nature, it begins to click. Um, and, you know... Um, the, the Proverbs say, you know, train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. And that's not a promise, but it's proverbial wisdom. Um, it's a good wisdom. And um, I think we can rest in the fact that, yeah, Jesus loves your kids more than you do. And you love your kids a whole bunch. And so love your kids well, love Jesus mm-hmm. well. And yeah, j- that's something that's hard that you just have to trust Jesus with. Um, and just uh, uh, keep taking care of your kids and knowing that, that God's taking care of them too. Well, one last question, and this is like a, uh, this is going to be a callback question to a previous episode. Um, so we got an email or two, uh, about, uh, a previous, uh, episode, um, that, and one of them said that we quote shamed Christ, which is pretty strong language, uh, because, uh, we were not hard enough on Alistair Begg, uh, for encouraging a grandmother to, attend her queer grandchild's wedding. And that person expressed their desire for us to recant and preach the true gospel. So speak now or forever hold your peace, Tamara. Is there anything which you would like to recant at this moment? <laughs> the, the way you set that up, Dale. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> um, I, you know, some of feedback is good, right? And I think we we did get some solid feedback from people like, "Ooh, yeah, I'm wrestling with that too," and they're wrestling with it, right? And um, I think just what we hope to do on this podcast is is to wrestle with things and to um, see our theology played out in real life. Um, and sometimes it's really easy to hold theology within chapters of a textbook that um, are systematic and uh, you read chapter one and you see all there is to see about that thing and then you move on to chapter two and it has a way of disconnecting us from the way we see our theology play out in our relationships and the way that we see theology actually um experienced in our own lives and with people we love. And uh, the hope of this podcast is that we would wrestle with that in between of staying true to scripture, but also remembering that our theology has to um, make sense as we put flesh on it. So for this particular thing, uh, this is a grandma who is 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 talking about a family member that she loves like there's a face there's a name um there's someone who she cherishes and so as we're thinking about how does theology apply in that context sometimes that changes it a little bit different 
uh, not in terms of its truth, but in terms of how hard we want to lay down a hammer. Yeah, um, ju- just to recap, Alex Serbeg, he holds to the traditional view of marriage. We hold to the traditional view of marriage. We do. Um, this grandmother came to him and said, um, my child is you know, LGBTQ. They're getting married. Um, should I go, even though I don't agree? And he said, in this instance, they already know that you don't agree, um, but you can surprise them with how much you love them by showing up. And the grandmother showed up with the gift, which was the Bible. Um, and in that episode, we were like, mm, I don't know. Eh, I don't know if that's like the best advice or if we would agree or would we do that? Um, we kind of wrestled. We lean no. Um, well, but, we, but we also were like, there's a lot of people out there who are – uh, kind of in the latest episode of Christians getting mad at other Christians for not being mean enough to gay people. And that was the vibe that we were trying to, you know, speak out against while holding to the traditional view. Just to recap, just to give the context. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's just the interesting part about these conversations is you will have people who hear only um, maybe certain aspects of what we say and uh, our view on marriage has not changed at all. Like we hold to a traditional view of marriage and that being between one man and, and one woman. And uh, so we have not shifted that view in any way. Um, I was recently talking to somebody uh, about this whole topic again. And, you know, he was even saying like, hey, like, would you go? And I'm like, nah, I don't. I I still like I still feel uncomfortable about saying yes to that. Um, but then in that podcast, we talked about like, what if it was your niece who was asking? And now I'm thinking like, is my niece saved? Like, what is her faith background? Um, is this a Christian wedding? Is this a non-Christian wedding? Um, if it's a non-Christian wedding, are we holding her to Christian standards? Like, you know, there's just other questions that are alongside this thing and yes if it's a christian wedding um you certainly should hold that person to a biblical view mm-hmm. but also which i think we expressed in that episode i thought we did I, but well, maybe we didn't based on <laughs> well we're, we're expressing it now basing on some concerns um the fact that we hold to a traditional view of marriage um and uh definitely think all christians should hold to that view as well um oh what was i saying Oh, that um, as you you think of, of attending a wedding and um, officiating a wedding, like those are also two different conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I'm sure Beg would agree under no circumstances should a Christian minister officiate, officiate yeah. right. under no circumstances right. ever. Yeah. yeah. But he says, but under some circumstances, because he said he wouldn't give this advice universally, under some circumstances it may be an olive branch yeah. to go to yeah. your grandchild's wedding when you don't agree with the manner of that wedding. Yeah, so um, I <laughs> I don't think I would change anything that I said on the previous podcast um, other than reiterating the fact that we hold to a traditional view of marriage. and um, Which I feel like we're on the record many times over. I mean, I across many so, years. but... Yeah. Yeah, so... I didn't know that we needed to restate that, but we will because um, in case that was missed somewhere in, in the hopefully the articulate nuanced conversation, but maybe we didn't articulate that well and that's okay. Um, again, we are all right with um, feedback and 
If it's constructive, great. We know that sometimes it's not and people are just upset <laughs> and that's all right as well. Dale loves to take those. I don't love to take those. I like to laugh at them because some people um, have a real flourish with language in the I, emails that they send know, me. I think that's the beauty of um, us. Just a real in, rhetorical flourish. Yes. Dale has a way of being able to take those and kind of, you know, like let it roll off. And I am like, oh, no, like they think we're heretics. We're not. We are not like we <laughs> we are very traditional in our views. Uh, we just like to have conversations. So, yeah, I mean, I can appreciate a, a good turn of phrase in someone sending me hate mail. So if you want to send me hate mail and you want me to read it and enjoy it, just make sure that you're just, you know, take a creative writing class bust out of the thesaurus and I'll read it and I will um, enjoy it. Maybe just say to Dale, um, that, that will be great. I'm just saying game recognizes game. I if mean, you're good, if read, you're a good writer, he reads all of them, whether you address them to him or not. But, uh, if they say to Dale, I won't read them at all. So that's great. Yeah. Well, there it is. <laughs> well, as you may have gathered, we don't want to shy away from tough questions on this podcast. In fact, that's partly why this podcast exists, to dive in, in, you know, right into the most pressing issues of life and faith. And so we don't always have the best answers, and we'll admit to not having the best answers or the most eloquently worded answers or insightful answers, but we are coming to this in good faith, and we take it seriously, and we work diligently to study scripture, to know it well enough. Uh, to give a halfway decent answer uh, or a halfway decent representation of what the Bible says. And not everyone agrees on what the Bible says in every instance, and that's actually okay too. Uh, in fact, we want to bring that to light as well, as we did in this conversation, as we explore like what are different denominations um, thinking about this? What are the different traditions here? What are our interpretive options, and how can we present all of those options charitably and kind of on their own terms, while also... Uh, offering our own opinionated stance, uh, sometimes you know, even strongly felt or strongly worded or strongly convicted stance on on which one we think is best. So we want to talk about uh, how to do theology, uh, even as much as we want to talk about the theology itself. And what makes that really fun is when you guys bring your questions uh, to us, and we get to tackle those together. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. If you're hearing this right now, you're probably like, who the heck is this and why are they playing during my favorite podcast? And I get it. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to introduce myself. My name is Trevor Tyson, and I'm the host of Trevor Talks, where we talk to real people about real topics and real stories. I just want to invite you, if you love podcasts, if you love music, if you love books and love hearing from the people who create it, come check us out at Trevor Talks. Simply go to Google or Life Audio, type in Trevor Talks, and it'll pop on up. Hope you have a great day.